So we are looking for really tall people or really short people to do the announcement video. Or those who, as Alan said a few weeks ago when we had this issue, are not in witness protection uh, as we're trying to protect your anonymity there. We are glad that you are here with us today. Uh, it's an exciting day, and I am really excited to introduce to you Sullivan Stokes. Come on up, Sullivan. Uh, I must say, and I told her I was going to say this, she is one of my top five favorite Stokes in the world, and um, ranking up there probably in the top one, and, uh, and, and I love them all. She is a sixth grader at uh, Washtenaw Christian School. She's an honor choir. I look forward to hearing your beautiful voice one day on this microphone. And she is also a basketball player, keeping through at least what I know of three generations of Stokes basketball players going. And uh, I think you'll outshine them all. How about that? She's going to be our scripture reader this morning. To those who brought through righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith, faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Amen. Amen. It is, uh, it's a beautiful thing to hear God's word read by those, uh, who are young and, you know, it's a, it's a, it can be an intimidating thing. I asked her if she was nervous. She said, no. I said, well, I am. So I was, you know, I always get nervous standing in front of a group of people, but uh, it takes a lot of courage and I appreciate all of our scripture readers willing to do that and read in front of a group of people. We're also excited, uh, to bring Larry Bowles in all the way from Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> It's windy in Oklahoma, and we are so glad that uh, that you're with us. You and Kathy came Great down to be, to be here. with us this Thank week. Thank you. Love so you. So I'm going to pray for you as we get started right. today. Wonderful. Thank you, Father, for just uh, blessing us with a great day. Thank you for just the, our worship, our communion together, and as we... Uh, now turn our attention to, to your word being preached. Uh, be with Larry. I know he is prepared. Thank you for always the way he breaks the bread to us and serves it. And may you empower him uh, in everything he studied. It's through Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Good morning, precious family. Good morning as well to all our folks over in the Fellowship Center, all of our online uh, live stream Uh, audience, greetings to you. Some of you are actually in this room today. Uh, There are people here from Fort Worth that wrote me. There she is right there. And there's, uh, how are you? Uh, And so great to have you with us uh, today. So sometimes uh, the live stream people actually show up. So it's, you know, it's awesome. Uh, Cheryl is back with us as well. We are in a series of uh, First Peter and uh, the text that I've been assigned this morning is First Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 21. And I know the chapter break ends at 25. They're slicing it kind of thin. So that's what I've been uh, assigned to teach on this morning. And so I would like to read, uh, and I'm going to read from the New English translation, uh, 13 through 21. Therefore, get your minds ready for action. By being fully sober, 
Set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Like obedient children, do not comply with the evil urges you used to follow in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, become holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, live out the time of your temporary residence here in reverence. You know that from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, you were ransomed, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and your hope are in God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for meeting us in this place. And you have told us that where we are gathered in your name, you are present with us. And so thank you for abiding with us, attending with us. Jesus, you are faithful and true. You are the word. And we did not come here this morning to hear a man speak, but we came to hear you. The way, the truth, and the life. So, Jesus, please make yourself manifest in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits this morning. How many times have you read this passage from First Peter chapter 1. Some of you probably a hundred times. Some of you maybe a few times. Some of you maybe have never had anybody call this passage to your attention today. But let me ask you, in this passage, there's several wonderful, wonderful statements, but there's something that has always popped out at me, and I don't know what has popped out at you, but if you're like me, there's a, one phrase there that kind of makes me cringe. And that's probably chapter, uh, verse 16, it says, Be holy, because I am holy. And I know that it's in there. And here's Peter quoting from the book of Leviticus, chapter 11. This occurs three times in Leviticus. And I'm about to preach Jesus out of Leviticus this morning, so it can be done. He does it in verse 44 and in verse 45, and then again in chapter 19. Verse 2, he does it three times where God is restating with absolute divine authority the holiness that is required in order to worship him. And he is doing it by taking them back through everything he laid out in the law of Moses and especially in the Ten Commandments. And God is telling them that if you're going to worship me, if you're going to address me as father, if you are going to be obedient children, if you're going to belong to me, then this is exactly how you're going to behave. And you are going to be holy because I am holy. And we think 
to ourselves, you know, I'm so glad that the old law is gone. But then we get into Matthew 5, 6 and 7 and Jesus does the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, Jesus takes us through the true meaning of all the commands of God. You've heard it said this, thou shalt not, but I tell you this. You think that was tough? Try this. And he just goes down the list. Then in Matthew 5 and verse 20, he says that unless your righteousness, Larry, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he concludes the whole thought in Matthew 5 and 48 by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Youch. And if you listen to anybody teach or preach long enough, they will always reveal their true weaknesses. And you've heard me a few times. If you ever wonder what a preacher struggles with, just listen to what he preaches about. He will preach about the very thing that's got him by the throat. I pretty much preach about one thing, and that's abiding in Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Because I live, you will live. Whoever tries to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. All of that is what has me by the throat absolutely every single day. My greatest weakness is not just in keeping my focus on the fact that he is, but it is acknowledging and recognizing the fact that I am not. Because when my life is entrenched in me, it is impossible to understand that Christ is my life, and apart from him, I cannot do anything. Mother Teresa, I think, said it best. She said, you can't understand that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have when if I were to ask each of you a question this morning and that question was something like this what is the most important thing in life to you what's the most important thing in the world to you I would get a lot of different answers because we humans uh, tend to think that some stuff in life is just really really important like life and death important and maybe it's not really that important And we're afraid of failing, but our fear should not be of failure, but it should be at succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And I think if we could ask Jesus what he thinks is the most important, what he thinks is life and death important, I think it might go something like this. The entire purpose of true life, your entire time on this earth is for Jesus Christ to accomplish one goal in you, and that is the loss of your life, so that his life might be made manifest in you. Jesus' entire goal, his working all things together, all the struggles, all the joy, all the pain, all the happiness, all the blessing, all the cursing, all of it, is for one purpose, and that is the loss of your strength your pride, your glory, your righteousness, your holiness, and your kingdom, so that you can gain his strength, his glory, his righteousness, his holiness, and his kingdom, his life in you, the hope of glory. He is trying to make his life manifest in us. He is trying to move us from death to life. But wait, Larry, you're telling me I can't do anything apart from Jesus? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying.
But wait, what about Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Really? We take that verse so totally out of context in the way we read it, the way we use it, and it's not at all what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4. You'll see that painted on every wall of every Christian high school or college locker room, and we're going out to win this game because of Jesus. Philippians 4.13 is not at all about achieving some goal or doing anything. It is about finding contentment, finding peace in the person of Jesus Christ in any conceivable situation, good or bad. It's not about you and I powering through something. It's not about the absence of trouble or fear or doubt or struggle. It's a, in fact, it's about the presence of Christ in the midst of Fear and trouble and doubt and struggle. And Paul is saying that he's not really worried about the way things work out. Good, bath, life or death. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He's saying he can go through anything because he's going to be safe in Jesus no matter how things turn out. Amen. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons, neither the present or future are any power, sickness, disease, cancer, injury, struggles, pandemics, kids in rebellion, church problems, family problems, politics, finance. Neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation has the ability to separate me from Jesus, my Lord. That is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus says. Because I want to control all the outcomes. For me, for my family, for everyone, for America, for Iran, for Afghanistan, for this entire world. But here's my problem. I can't even control myself. And that's my biggest problem. I am literally so weak. I cannot live the life that I know that I'm supposed to live. I cannot do it. But I want you to believe that I can because I want to believe that I can even though that I know I can't. I'll even try to get you to believe in me, to encourage me, to cheer me on in my own self-effort. How stupid is that? Because whatever I do in the power of the flesh to fix my flesh only strengthens the flesh. Whatever I do in my own strength only makes my flesh more hostile and resistant to God. So let's say that I'm standing up here talking, and all of a sudden I get a twitch in my right arm. And it flies up and hits me in the face. And I'm like, this is really annoying. It's embarrassing because I'm trying to be serious at the moment, and it'll twitch and hit me in the face. And I'm like, I am going to fix this. And Kathy says, how are you going to fix this? I said, hide and watch. And I'm going to get some weights, and I'm going to start lifting weights, and I'm going to strengthen my right arm to where I am so strong that when it twitches, I'll have the strength to resist it and hold it down. Well, she goes to the grocery store and comes home, and I'm laying in the middle of the living room floor with the side of my head bashed in. And she says, what happened? And it's like, I twitched. What used to have strength to annoy me, now I have given power to kill me. That's my problem. That's my struggle. 
Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he goes on in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, that's a long time, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, not a dot or an iota, it says, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, what do we know about the law that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5, the law of Moses? Paul called it the law of sin and death. What do we know? The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 20, the law was added so that things would get worse for you. So that things would be impossible for you. Do you know every time you're reading in Scripture and you see the word so that, you know what is going on? That is the sovereignty of God in action. That is God doing something that takes you out of control and puts you in a position where you have no other choice but to choose. Numbers 21, the snake on the pole, just as the Son of Man. This is, this is John 3 and 14. You're all snake bit. Everybody's dying. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but save the world because everybody's already snake bit. The only way out, so that, God says, is through faith. All judgment has been given to the son. Why? So that all will honor the son in exactly the same way as they honor the father. This is not God junior. This is God in the flesh. What was that A whole point of the law of Moses? All that time, all that struggle, what was it all for? To show us that we can't. You can't keep it. Jesus says if you're guilty of breaking one part of it, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. And then you're neither holy nor perfect. You can't do it. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he does it in Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that it said, you shall not murder. And everybody's like, okay, I'm down with that. I have not murdered anyone yet, today, surely. I can play that game, Jesus. Let's go. And he says, I'll tell you what. If you hate your brother, even more than that, if you're angry with your brother, guess what? You're guilty of the same crime. Okay, well, that's not fair. Jesus says, let's play again. Okay, it's like playing poker with Jesus. And so, you uh, shall not commit adultery. Okay, okay. I can do that. I can do that. And I'll see that bet, and I'll raise you, and Jesus shoves the entire pile and says, I call you, if you've ever looked upon a woman lustfully, lustfully, you're, you're guilty of that sin. He's like, that is not fair. This is a game that is designed for you and I not to be able to win. It's impossible to do this. We can't save ourselves. We can't live the life he created for us to live. How did Jesus fulfill the law and all the prophets? You know how he did it? Jesus did not come to show us what we could do. He came to show us what we could not do. That's how he fulfilled it. He has canceled the written code. It has been nailed to the cross. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the spirit of religion and self-effort and independence from God is as alive and as well today as it has ever been before. Ever. It's not a Christian religion. It's life in Christ. 
And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus tells us plainly what his life in us looks like. And I want to be spiritual. I want to be dependent on Jesus. I just don't want to have to go through all the things to make me spiritual and dependent on Jesus. I I want the life that Jesus offers me, but I want nothing to do with his death. And I certainly want nothing to do with his daily suffering. But here's a fact. Resurrection life in Christ is only available to those who have died. Do I truly follow Jesus or do I ask Jesus to follow me? Is Jesus my life or have I just added Jesus to the life that I want to live? In Matthew 10:38, Jesus tells us plainly, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me, meaning your death, that's where you got the cross, whoever doesn't do that is not worthy of me. Jesus says that being a follower of him, being worthy of him, involves participating in his death, suffering the same shame and disgrace that he bore, Hebrews 13:13, 13, 13, losing my life, denying myself daily, finding my life only in him, Matthew 10. Don't suppose I come to bring peace, but division. This is life and death. The reality is, when I follow Jesus, I am crucified with him and I no longer live, Colossians 2.20. As a result, his life becomes my life because he lives, I live, John 14.19. If my life is driven more by my own opinions, my preferences, my desires, and my comfort, I may not be following Jesus at all, I may just have an idol named Jesus. When I take up my cross every day, submitting and laying down my life before him as a living sacrifice, Romans 12:1, I allow him, I give him permission to shape me into his own likeness with ever-increasing glory, 2 Corinthians 3:17. He moves me into his death through his resurrection so that... My life will be made manifest, his life will be made manifest in me. I'm going to say it again. He moves me into his death through his resurrection so that his life will be made manifest in me. It's exactly what Paul is saying. Second Corinthians 4 in verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death. We are being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our mortal bodies. Jesus tells us clearly in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, exactly what the characteristics of spirituality are so we don't ever have to be confused. He says that to belong to him is to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be weak, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, to have joy when you're persecuted, to be salt and light in this earth, to be devoid of anger, not to have a contemptuous word for anybody else, not to hold anything against anybody else. To have a spirit of agreement, to be truthful in speech and in attitude, to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile, to love my enemies, to pray for those who persecute me. Here's my problem. I can't do any of that. 
I need Jesus to come and be that in my life. Jesus did not come to help you in your life. He came to be your life. Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 30. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that I hate. And the things that are not, everything I'm not, to nullify the things that are, verse 29, so that nobody can boast before him. It's all him. It has nothing to do with me. It is because of him that I'm in Christ Jesus. How did you get into Christ? One day you finally got so sick you gave up and came to Jesus and God placed you into the body of Christ. He puts you there. And he has, this is the wisdom of God. He has become for us our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. We don't have holiness and righteousness on our own accord. It is of him That we are in Christ and therefore he has become that for us. Jesus said he was the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and every other way is not the way. Every other truth is a lesser truth that falls at his feet. And there is no other life source besides Jesus Christ himself. The Bible does not say that God helps those who help themselves. The Bible says that God helps those who will finally cry out for help. I can't love my enemies. I need for him to come and be love for my enemies. I can't find peace in my life. I need for him to come and be peace in my life. I can't forgive those who sin against me. I need for him to come and be forgiveness for those who have hurt me or abused me in the past. I can't preach and teach this morning. I need Jesus to come and preach and teach this morning. And I am through trying to save my life. I'm going to have to lose my life so that I can gain his life. The Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon on the Mount. It is a life on the Mount. It is a description of the life of Christ. Spirituality is not a teaching. It is a person, and it is exactly Jesus. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is written into your DNA. It is written into the fabric of who you are. He is the truth, and this truth testifies to the truth that He placed inside you when He created you. And if you hear anything up here this morning that speaks truth in your life, it's not me saying, it's Him saying it, because His words never pass away. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but His words are spirit and are life. They're sharper than any two-edged sword. They cut you in half and expose you and judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Hebrews 4.12. That's who this is. This is on the hard drive. Every person you meet, truth is on the hard drive because Jesus created them and wrote it into them. 
Colossians 1, 16, ESV, For by Him all things are created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, things you can see, things you can't, where the thrones or dominions or rules or powers or authorities, all things are created through Him and for Him. He's in all, He's through all, things are by Him and for Him, and we understand that He created everything, but what does it mean that everything is created for Him? That means nothing in all of creation... You can't pick a single thing that doesn't find its true purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything was created for one purpose, and that is to preach and teach who Jesus is. And all of this is, is how all of it relates to the I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. John 15 and verse 5 and 6. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me... And I remain in you. I I love the word abide there, not remain. When I was in high school, I had to remain in that English class until the bell rang. But I was not abiding anything going on in that room. You know what I'm saying? There's a big difference between remaining in Christ, saying that I belong to Him, saying that I follow Him, and abiding to where I am so preoccupied in His presence... And that's what the Holy Spirit's function is, is to keep my mind so focused on Jesus, I can't see anything else. He is truth and life. And he says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if you do not abide in me, this is an option for you. You can either abide in Christ or you cannot abide in Christ. You understand what he's saying here? If you don't do it, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Whenever Jesus uses the words, I am, what he is saying is that he is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that thing was ever created to preach and teach. He makes statements like this at least seven different times in the book of John. Right here, Jesus did not use the analogy of a vine, saying that he's like a vine. He did that when he talked about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a pearl of great price. It's like a treasure hidden in the field. No, he says, I am the vine. I am the true vine. And what this means is that everything we could ever possibly observe happening biologically, metaphorically, spiritually within a vine is meant to do one thing, and that's preach and teach Jesus Christ. When a branch is hooked to a vine, it is hooked to a life source, right? And that's what gives it life. But what makes that branch grow over time in a season of of growing? Sunlight. Wind and rain. Okay? That's what causes that growth to occur. When you cut that branch off of that vine, what is it that takes that branch and breaks it down into dust, into nothing? Sunlight, wind, and rain. It's the same external forces that cause growth in the presence of life destroy life in the absence of life. How we try to fix ourselves from the outside in. I just need some more sunlight. I just need some more wind. I need some more rain. No, you don't. You got no life source. We're all born a branch in a vase waiting to die. That's why he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. 
He is the only true life source and we are completely dependent on him. And without his life in us, we are utterly useless and dead. And it is the heart of every believer where this divine umbilical cord stops. And his life goes through my heart and is pumped out through my entire being. It's not about what I know. It's about who I'm attached to, who is the source of my life. And to be spiritual is to have exactly Jesus flowing through you. It is life on the vine. This is the life of a branch. It's not acting like Jesus. It is exactly Jesus living in you. I cannot imitate Christ. I must participate in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It doesn't come through an education. This has to come through revelation. We don't make disciples at the Acro Center through a transfer of information. True disciples become true disciples only by their connection to Jesus Christ. Is education the key to life? Because that's when you turn on the TV, that's what everybody says is going to fix everything. We're always thinking of the next piece of information that's going to complete our understanding. Here's the problem. The Word did not become Word. The Word became flesh. Mary didn't throw back the covers and say, Look, Joseph, I gave birth to a book. Following Jesus is not an analytical endeavor that strives for the next piece of knowledge about him. It's a life and death pursuit of the person of Jesus. When, when Jesus comes first, Scripture exudes life. When Jesus comes last, this is lifeless. This is not the truth. This testifies to the truth. Because Jesus is the truth, and it's exactly what he says in John chapter 5 and verse 39. Right after he finishes saying many other things in John 5. He said, you study these scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. You don't. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and what you do is refuse To come to me to have life. You're living your life all in here. You need to see this, and this needs to drive you to me so that you can have life. Proverbs 3, 5, Jesus says this. Lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. Understanding is centered in knowledge and education. It's my belief system. It's what we call faith. And I tend to wield it like it's something to do in my own power and in my own strength. Trust, however, is not centered in information and education. It's centered in a person. And his name is Jesus. And it's his character, his strength, his power, his glory, his holiness, his righteousness. And Jesus is continually trying to move me from faith to trust. And I'm talking about unreasonable trust. What am I saying when I'm talking unreasonable trust? When something befalls me in my life, 
I don't have to go through my belief system and work through my faith in order to get to trust. What I want to do is default immediately to trust and say, Amen, Jesus. I trust you. I don't have to understand. I'm moving from faith into trust because of your character, not my strength. I can't do all things, but you can. And that's where I want to be. Unreasonable. And he says, I am going to work all things together for your good. And that's everything good and bad. And if I won't freely give him my trust, he will use all things, especially my suffering, hardship and struggle to drive me to him because he's a jealous God and he will pursue me. God does not cause my suffering, hardship or struggle, but he allows it in my life. And he uses it for his glory. And he works all things together for my good in order to refine me just like gold is refined in a fire. Revelation 3.18, Church of Laodicea. You guys think you're rich? No, you're poor, pitiful, blind, naked. Does that sound like salvation language? Not hardly. I don't want to be spit out of the mouth of God. I want to return to my first love. I want his life to be manifest in me. And as much as we would like to believe that education is not the key, think about it. Three years Jesus walked with the disciples, taught them every day. They saw every miracle. Where did that end them in the capacity, their, their own capacity to understand? They denied him. They deserted him. Every single one of them fell away. We tend to think that nobody was saved until the invention of the printing press. Have you hidden the word in your heart? Have you studied the word? Have you, and you know, Larry, you're up here saying that the Bible scripture is not important, but you're a Bible teacher. How does that work? Because this is not life. Jesus is life. This testifies to the truth and the way and the life. Hmm. Let's say that um, it's 160 A.D. And there's a young slave girl living in a little village in the Izmir province of what is now modern Turkey. This is under Roman occupation. It's about 130 years since Jesus was resurrected. And she's a slave. She can't read. She can't write. She has nothing. And through the village one day comes an evangelist. And he stands up on the stump in the middle of town and he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she is torn in half and cut to the heart and runs up to the guy and gives her life to Christ and is baptized in the name of Jesus. She'll never hold the Bible. She's probably never going to hold a scroll. All she's got is what she heard in the way of the gospel. Is Jesus enough to save her? Absolutely. You know why? Because his life becomes her life. Because he lives, she now lives. Her eyes become his, seeing as he sees. Her ears hear truth revealed by his spirit within her. Her hands, her feet, her strength, all become His. Christ is her life. We are made to be holy as He is holy. 
Jesus is the I am. John 6, 49. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. Well, what do we know about manna? What would happen if you went out and tried to become independent from God? Take your, take your, you know, Tupperware out there and get some to stretch your manna dollar, right? And you put it in there. What happens? The manna you had yesterday was worms and maggots today. We think manna was intended to be totally about God feeding the children of Israel for 40 years. That's not at all what it was truly about. Did you know you can walk from Cairo to Canaan in 11 days if you never stop? You could do it six weeks easy, taking your time. God led them 40 years. Why did he do that? He's trying to teach them something. He's trying to weed out a generation that can't be taught, that is stiff-necked and will not respond, will not repent. God is using their physical hunger, their daily struggle to survive, their absolute need to sustain themselves, to teach them dependence on Him as their only life source. They are going out every morning, bending over, picking this up, putting it in their mouths, chewing it, swallowing it, ingesting it, making it part of themselves. And folks, that is about as base level as anything gets. And this is exactly what Jesus is teaching in John 6, 51. I am the true manna that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever, which I am giving for the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything manna was ever meant to preach or teach for 40 years in the desert. Every time that we take the Lord's Supper, that's what we're proclaiming, His death, until He comes. We're proclaiming our own death. The point that Jesus is trying to get through to you and me this morning is that the Jesus you had yesterday is worms and maggots today. It will not sustain you. You must gather Him again. Abiding is moment by moment. Our life in Him is moment by moment. This whole thing is about you and I becoming utterly and completely dependent on Jesus, eating His flesh and drinking His blood. We become partakers of His divine nature. Jesus says, come to me because I am and you are not. John eight fifty eight. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. He is, I am, and I am not. He is to me everything that I am not, but he will not be to me everything I'm not until I admit to him everything I am not. I'm going to say it again. He is to me everything that I'm not. But he will not be to me everything that I am not until I admit to him everything that I am not. Moses was raised as a Pharaoh. He was taught he was God on earth. He was raised believing he was an I am. Then he got kicked out into the wilderness and it didn't take long to figure out that he went from being an I am to an I am not. And then God spoke to him in Exodus 3, and he says, I want you to go tell the most powerful man on the planet to let my people go. And Moses said, but who am I? And God said, what do I care about that? I am. 
And he said, but, you know, I'm not smart. And God said, I am your wisdom. And he said, but I'm not strong. And he said, I am your strength. And he said, but I'm not good with words. And he said, Moses, I am the word. The word became flesh. Jesus says, come to me. I am the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. And everything that you will finally admit to me that you're not, I am going to come and be for you. So you just go ahead and lay in your bed at night and have a big old pity party. You just tell Jesus everything that you can't do, everything that you're not, how inadequate you are. And what you've just done in that moment is articulate your qualifications for having his life made manifest into you. And he will come and lay down beside you, hold you in his arms and whisper in your ear, I am. Second Peter 1, 3 and 4, Sullivan read this for us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, holiness, perfection, righteousness, everything that we can't have. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory, His own excellence, not the glory of Larry, but the glory of Christ by which He has granted to us these precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of His divine nature, Christ in you, the hope of glory, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of your sinful desire. Your old desires aren't yours anymore. Your desires are His. Your eyes are His. Your strength is His. Your life is His. I want to be a partaker of His divine nature. My goal in life is to become a loser. A loser of my life. So that I can gain His. I'm ready to be made holy. As He is holy. Are you ready to lose your strength? Your glory, your pride, your righteousness, your holiness, your little kingdom. So that you can gain his strength, his glory, his righteousness, his holiness, and live forever in his kingdom. To lose your life so that his life will be made manifest. Then cry out to him. He will come to you. He will show himself to you, John fourteen twenty one, directly from the mouth of God in the flesh, the person of Jesus Christ. I will come to you. I will show myself to you. I will make my home with you. His very words, these very great and precious promises in big red letters spoken to you is Christ your life this morning. Cry out to Jesus this morning. Won't you come as we stand?